welcome to City Breaks London, episode 26, Literary London. I am Marion Jones, and this is the penultimate episode of what will have been City Breaks' longest series to date, the London one. That's because there's so much to say about London. But it is in fact nearly time to move on and do something else. Anyway, today, Literary London, I've got lots of things to offer you. Somebody else's book list of books set in London that she enjoyed. No fewer than four different literary anthologies that I can recommend and which we're going to dip into a little bit. Four ideas for literary walks in London. And a possibly clichéd but nevertheless wonderful poem to finish with. And so I think that what's required is to make a quick start. And I'm going to begin with a contribution from Tal, a friend of the podcast, who I've featured before and who runs the brightnomad.net website. Browsing on there, as I do occasionally, I came across a post entitled Wonderful Books Set in London. A perfect start for the episode, I thought. And I was very glad when Tal agreed that yes, I can pinch what I like from it. So her post has eight different entries covering books that she personally has enjoyed, all of which are set in London. It opens, These are books to read before you visit London or when you've been away from it for too long and miss it. If you live in London, you'll enjoy them even more. And then there are eight separate entries, each of which gives you a cover picture to whet your appetite, a little summary of the book, the reasons why Tal liked it, and links to buy it. So a sort of handy all-in-one place list. To take one of the eight entries as an example, there's a recommendation for a book called Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes. Tal explains that it's a story set in 1958, the story of the character Blitz Baby's teenage years in London, documenting jazz clubs, coffee bars, the fashion and rock and roll of that era, the emergence of mod culture, if you will. It's set in Notting Hill in the years before it became posh. Racism's a big issue. The story ends with the Notting Hill riots of 1958. And Tal sums up the reasons why she likes it as follows. I like how the book shows all these different sides of London, the hip youth culture versus the racial tension, and it's interesting to see how London has changed since the book was written. Okay, so that gives you a flavour of what you'll find on this post. I'm going to pick two more books which she recommends and introduce them by way of an extract which I've chosen. The first one is a wonderful book called Salam Brick Lane by Tarquin Hall, which Tal says is one of her favourite reads. The story of an English journalist who's been working abroad returns to London to discover that the only place he can afford to live is East London. So he rents an attic in Brick Lane. And as the story, which relates a year in his life, progresses, we meet the locals, who are mostly immigrants and asylum seekers, and learn about their struggles. It doesn't, says Tal, sound very appealing, but that book is a truly powerful read. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for the picture it painted of the Brick Lane area in the early 2000s. Here, for example, is an extract which comes from the beginning of the book. The narrator is newly back from journalistic work in Southeast Asia, and he's hit on this area of London as being the place where he might be able to afford to live. Here's his description. The area was mostly residential. The streets filled with the sounds of Talvin Singh blaring from open windows and the enticing aromas of South Asian cooking. Among the tightly packed terraces there were businesses too, all of them immigrant-owned. A halal butcher there, 
an old warehouse packed with rows of people working behind sewing machines there, and on one corner an Islamic paraphernalia shop, selling everything from leather-bound Qurans to prayer mats with sewn-in compasses, designed to ensure that the 21st century Muslim never fails to locate Mecca. Looking up at the street signs, I noticed they were written in Bengali, as were the posters plastered on the lampposts and walls. The illusion of being back in South Asia was almost complete. But as I reached the next main road, the sight of a red double-decker bus hurtling past reminded me that this was London, just not the London I knew. And here then, a few chapters later, the narrator talks about Christmas at Brick Lane. Despite the lack of traditional Christmas cheer, however, the thousands of Bangladeshis, Somalis, Afghans and other Muslims living in the East End were in festive mood. That year, the lead-up to Christmas coincided with the holy month of Ramadan, which started at the end of November. And while London's West End was hosting the annual shopping orgy, there was devotion in the air on Brick Lane. The faithful were fasting from dawn and gathering in each other's homes or in the local eateries at 4.30 in the afternoon for iftar to break their fast. There follows then more detail about the way in which the Muslims celebrate Ramadan in the mosques and the madrasas, but then, because of funny characters never far away, comes the following. Even Mr Ali was taking his religious duties seriously. Fasting's murder, innit? He admitted to me at the end of the first week, groaning and clutching his stomach. All I can think about all day is having a Whopper cheeseburger with chips and a Coke. Mr Ali's daily strategy for the fast was to rise at four o'clock and stuff himself with an enormous breakfast. In the afternoon he'd sit down to a huge iftar meal. And later, before going to bed, he would feast again, usually on a large Turkish doner kebab with extra chilli sauce. And, by way of contrast, a second book from Tal's list is one called At Bertram's Hotel by Agatha Christie. A completely different matter. A detective story in which Miss Marple, a little old lady who seems slightly dotty, is actually working behind the scenes to prod the police into solving a mystery. And the whole thing is set at Bertram's Hotel in London and has what you could only describe as a very, very English atmosphere. The hotel is somewhere near Park Lane in a very unpretentious, quiet little street. A hotel which has been there a long, long time, which was damaged or, quote, as house agents would say, scratched, bruised and marked by the war, but has since been restored. By 1955, it looked precisely as it had looked in 1939, writes Agatha Christie, dignified, unostentatious and quietly expensive. It's the sort of hotel, she writes, that Americans would like. They want to go back home after their visit to London and say, quote, There's a wonderful place in London, Bertram's Hotel it's called. It's just like stepping back a hundred years. It just is old England. And the people who stay there, people you would never come across anywhere else, wonderful old duchesses. They serve all the old English dishes. There's a marvellous old-fashioned beefsteak pudding. You've never tasted anything like it. And great sirloins of beef and saddles of mutton. And an old-fashioned English tea and a wonderful English breakfast. And, of course, all the usual things as well. And it's wonderfully comfortable and warm. Great log fires. I'm sure you're getting the picture. Thanks very much to Tal for those two ideas. Do have a look at the rest of the list, which you'll find at brightnomad.net forward slash books set in London. The books set in London all being separated by hyphens. I'll put the link on the show notes. And now for the main part of the episode, I'd like to feature four different London anthologies, any of which I would recommend as being a really good weekend read. 
They're all stuffed full of extracts, and I've picked just one or two from each one to feature here, and I've also managed to persuade my reader, Dan, to come back and help out on a second episode, so you'll be hearing his voice instead of mine for some of them. So, the first book I chose is one called London, an Illustrated Literary Companion, compiled by Rosemary Gray. It's a sweet little book, the sort you might give as a gift or love to receive as a gift. Small format, 380 pages or so of extracts, beautifully illustrated with black and white photos, prints, line drawings, cartoons. And here from it, just to set the scene of a London anthology, is a little extract written by Virginia Woolf from her novel The Waves, which reads as follows. Here I stand, said Ginny, in the tube station, where everything that is desirable meets. Piccadilly South Side, Piccadilly North Side, Regent Street and the Haymarket. I stand for a moment under the pavement in the heart of London. Innumerable wheels rush and feet press just over my head. The great avenues of civilization meet here and strike this way and that. I am in the heart of life. That takes you straight into central London, does it not? This particular anthology has quite a lot of poetry featured in it, so I've chosen four quite short ones from it, which Dan is going to read us. The first two are a contrasting pair, a serious one on the Nelson statue at Trafalgar Square called Aloft and Alone, and then a very silly one called Burlington Bertie. Bertie, as you'll soon hear, in one of those dandies you might see in the posher parts of London. Aloft and Alone Trafalgar Square The fountain's volleying golden glaze Shines like an angel market High aloft, over his couchant lions in a haze Shimmering and bland and soft A dust of chrysophase Our sailor takes the golden gaze Of the saluting sun Burlington Bertie I'm Burlington Bertie. I rise at 10.30 and saunter along like a toff. I walk down the strand with my gloves on my hand. Then I walk down again with them off. And next then, two very London poems. Two versions, in fact, of the same poem. Both taken from Rosemary Gray's illustrated Companion to London and written about 150 years apart. First, London Bells, a version believed to date from the early 18th century. And following that then, What Do the Bells Say? from 1858, published in Punch in December of that year. Two sticks and an apple, say the bells at Whitechapel. Old Father Bald Pate, say the bells at Aldgate. Maids in white aprons, say the bells at St Catherine's. Oranges and lemons, say the bells of St Clemens. You owe me five farthings, say the bells of St Martin's. When will you pay me, said the bells of Old Bailey. When I am rich, said the bells of Shoreditch. When will that be, say the bells of Stepney. I'm sure I don't know, says the great bell at Bow. What do the bells say? The people want gardens, say the bells of St Martin's. Townsfolk look palely, said the bells of Old Bailey. Not if they're rich, said the bells of Shoreditch. Then they come out to me, said the bells of Chelsea. Or with me take a bed, said the bells of Hampstead. But in close London dwellings, say the bells of St Helens. How do they draw breath, said the bells of St Faith. Blessed if I know, says the great bell of Bow. And turning next to a different anthology, one called The Blue Guide, a literary companion to London, billed as an anthology of writing on London from down the ages. 
on the back cover it talked about there being extracts from, quote, Dr. Johnson to James Bond. It does contain some non-fiction, but there are also writings from poets, novelists and playwrights. The book is divided into 13 different themes. Each one has an introduction and then a selection of extracts linked to that theme. And again, I've just chosen a few little extracts to give a flavour. From the chapter entitled London Visions, here's Oscar Wilde describing Dawn in London. Where he went, he hardly knew. He had a dim memory of wandering through a labyrinth of sordid houses, of being lost in a giant web of sombre streets, and it was bright dawn when he found himself at last in Piccadilly Circus. As he strolled home towards Belgrave Square, he met the great wagons on their way to Covent Garden. The white-smoked carters, with their pleasant sunburnt faces and coarse curly hair, strode sturdily on, cracking their whips and calling out now and then to each other. On the back of a huge grey horse, the leader of a jangling team, sat a chubby boy with a bunch of primroses in his battered hat, keeping tight hold of the mane with his little hands and laughing. And the great piles of vegetables looked like masses of jade against the morning sky, like masses of green jade against the pink petals of some marvellous rose. And next, from a novel called Pelham, by Edward Bulwer-Lytton, here's a little scene in which Mr Pelham goes to the tailors. Not any old tailors, you understand. One of those very posh London ones. Think Savile Row and German Street, etc., if you listen to the shopping episode. And this comes from the chapter entitled Dandies. I think you'll soon hear why. We are a very good figure, Mr Pelham. Very good figure replied the Schneider, surveying me from head to foot while he was preparing his measure. We want a little assistance, though. We must be padded well here. We must have our chest thrown out, and have an additional inch across the shoulders. We must live for effect in this world, Mr Pelham, a little tighter around the waist, eh? Sir, said I, you will take, first, my exact measure, and secondly, my exact instructions. Have you done the first? We are done now, Mr Pelham replied my man-maker, in a slow, solemn tone. You will have the goodness, then, to put no stuffing of any description in my coat. You will not pinch me an iota tighter across the waist than is natural to that part of my body, and you will please, in your infinite mercy, to leave me as much after the fashion in which God made me as you possibly can. But, sir, we must be padded. We are much too thin. All the gentlemen in the lifeguards are padded, sir. And finally, from the Blue Guide Literary Companion, is an extract from Anthony Trollope's novel, Can You Forgive Her?, in which he describes the plight of a poor London street girl and the evening on which somebody comes to her rescue. So this is how the scene starts. He had crossed from Regent Street through Hanover Square, and as he came out by the Iron Gates into Oxford Street, a poor, wretched girl, lightly clad in thin raiment, into whose bones the sharp, freezing air was penetrating, asked him for money. Would he give her something to drink, so that for a moment she might feel the warmth of her life renewed? Such midnight petitions were common enough in his ears, and he was passing on without thinking of her. But she was urgent and took hold of him. For love of God, she said, if it's only a penny to get a glass of gin, feel my hand how cold it is, and she strove to put it up against his face. The text continues, he realises the girl is very young, not more than sixteen, and he takes pity on her, takes her to a public house, and gets her a meal of bread and meat and beer. The man stands quietly in the background while she eats and drinks, 
conscious that she's a little embarrassed. And then the text continues like this, quote, He quietly paid what was due when the girl had finished her meal and then walked with her out of the shop. And now, said he, what must I do with you? If I give you a shilling, can you get a bed? She told him that she could get a bed for sixpence. Then keep the other sixpence for your breakfast, said he, but you must promise me that you will buy no gin tonight. She promised him, and then he gave her his hand as he wished her good night. So, just a little scene in the middle of a long novel, but one which paints a picture of what life would have been like for so many people on London streets. This book was published in 1865 and makes you very aware of the dangers facing young girls if they were in London and had fallen on hard times. The third book which I've chosen to feature is slightly different. It's called Fictional London, A Guide to the Capital's Literary Landmarks by Stephen Halliday. Here's how its introduction opens. London's place in literature is unrivalled, from Chaucer's pilgrims gathering at the Tabard Inn, Southwark, to the Hogwarts Express departing from platform nine and three quarters at King's Cross. It has proved endlessly tempting to novelists, poets and others whose imaginations have woven the great city into their stories, its streets, parks, squares, buildings and, of course, its river, have featured in more works than it is possible to mention. The book is then divided up by areas of London and for each one, there's an explanation of all the places that you'd pass if you were walking round it that are in some way connected to literature. It could be places where authors have lived, or places which feature in works of fiction, and it's interspersed with quotations too. In the City of Westminster chapter, for example, there's a section entitled Mayfair and St James, part of which reads as follows. On Albemarle Street lies the upmarket Browns Hotel, considered to be the inspiration for the setting of Agatha Christie's Miss Marple novel at Bertram's Hotel. Arthur Holmwood stays here in Dracula, although in the book it is referred to as the Albemarle Hotel. Nearby to the north is Mount Street, which contains the London home of Archdeacon Grantly in Anthony Trollope's Barchester novels. And then a paragraph or so later, the author arrives at the Mall and reminds us about A. A. Milne's best-known poem, Buckingham Palace, followed by a quotation. Their changing guard at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. Alice is marrying one of the guard. A soldier's life is terribly hard, says Alice. Their changing guard at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. We saw a guard in a sentry box. One of the sergeants looks after their socks, says Alice. And while on the subject of Buckingham Palace, the author mentions Virginia Woolf's novel Mrs Dalloway, where a character says what they think about the architecture of Buckingham Palace. A child with a box of bricks could have done better, is what they say. So you get the idea. Literary anecdotes, quotations, facts about authors are all mingled together and presented according to the area of London to which they refer. When he gets to Middle and Inner Temple, the author reminds us about the scene in Shakespeare's Henry VI Part One in which two factions who are soon to be at war decide to identify themselves by a white rose and a red rose. Here's his explanation and the ensuing quotation. The two factions contending the wars of the roses gathered and declared their allegiance to one side or the other by plucking a white rose to represent the House of York or a red rose to represent the claims of Lancaster. The two factions are represented by Richard Plantagenet, later Duke of York, and John Beaufort, later Duke of Somerset. 
And then the quotation, Plantagenet, let him that is a true-born gentleman and stands upon the honour of his birth, if he suppose that I have pleaded truth, from off this briar pluck a white rose with me. The Duke of Beaufort then replies, let him that is no coward nor no flatterer, but dare maintain the party of the truth, pluck a red rose from off this thorn with me. And then Stephen Halliday goes on to explain that there's no evidence this actually ever happened, either in the garden of Temple Church or anywhere else. But it's a story a lot of people know and like to believe. And so then to the fourth anthology which I've chosen, one called City Lit London. The City Lit books are a whole series which go under the heading of Perfect Gems of City Writing, and which I highly recommend. City Lit London has ten themed sections, so grouping extracts according to what they're about, but making a point of having all sorts of different things in them. The blurb on the back of the book promises us, amongst many other things, quote, Monica Alley smelling the curry on Brick Lane, Dostoevsky strolling down the Haymarket, and Barbara Cartland taking us to a West End ball. One of the chapters is entitled Take the Tour. It's all about the touristy things that people do in London, and it opens with a piece by Margaret Atwood remembering her first visit to London and the sightseeing programme that she undertook. Tired and straight off the plane, she went immediately to Canada House. She reckons all young Canadians did that. She describes renting a cold, damp room in Wilsdon Green, that being the cheapest thing available, and she explains that she was unaware when she booked it that it wasn't actually in central London, but that a longish tube ride out up north would be required. And then she goes on to explain how she was determined to see as much as she possibly could. Quote, the next day I set out on what appears to me in retrospect a dauntingly ambitious quest for cultural trophies. My progress through the accumulated bric-a-brac of centuries was marked by the purchase of dozens of brochures and postcards, which I collected to remind myself that I had actually been wherever it was I'd been. At breakneck speed, I gawped my way through Westminster Abbey, the Houses of Parliament, St Paul's Cathedral, the Tower of London, the Victoria and Albert Museum, the National Portrait Gallery, the Tate, the Houses of Samuel Johnson, Buckingham Palace and the Albert Memorial. At some point I fell off a double-decker bus and sprained my foot, but even this, although it slowed me down, did not stop me in my headlong and reckless pursuit. After a week of this, my eyes were rolling around like loose change, and my head, although several sizes larger, was actually a good deal emptier than it had been before. There's another chapter entitled, Maybe It's Because I'm a Londoner, and from there comes this list, written in a book called The Groundwater Diaries by Tim Bradford, of all the things that he loves about London. The girls in their first strappy dresses of the summer, the smell of chips, the liquid orange skies of early evening, high-rise glass office palaces, the lost-looking old men still eating at their regular calves even after they've been turned into Le Café Trendy or Cyber Bacon, the old shop fronts, the rotting pubs, the cacophony of peeling and damp Victorian residential streets, neoclassical shopping centres, buses that never arrive on time, incessant white noise fears of gossip, little shops, big shops, late-night kebab shops with slowly turning cylinders of khaki fat and gristle in the window, the bitter caramel of car exhaust fumes, drivers spitting abuse at each other through the safety of tinted electric windows, hot and tightly packed tubes in summer, a 
and the roar of the crowd from Highbury or White Hart Lane. And finally from City Lit London, from the chapter called Up the West End, a description of the area Portobello from Ruth Rendell's novel, also called Portobello. The Portobello has a rich personality, vibrant, brilliant in colour, noisy, with graffiti that approach art, bizarre and splendid. And then she goes on to explain what you can buy there. Quote, you can buy anything there. Everything on earth is on sale. Furniture, antiques, clothes, bedding, hardware, music, food and food and more food, vegetables and fruit, meat and fish, cheese and chocolate. The stalls sell jewellery, hats, masks, prints, postcards old and new, shawls and scarves, shoes and boots, pots and pans, flowers, real and artificial, furs and fake furs, lamps and musical instruments. You can buy a harp there or a birdcage a stuffed bear or a wedding dress, or the latest bestseller. If you want to eat your lunch in the street, you can buy paella or pancakes, piping hot from a stall. I would recommend any of those four anthologies as being a really good read, and an excellent thing to have on your shelf when you are thinking about London or planning another visit. To continue, I wanted to make a brief mention of four different literary walks that you can go on in London, each linked to a different author or work. So there's the Dickens Walk. Obviously there are lots of Dickens Walks, but the one I picked out is from the london-walking-tours.co.uk. It's in their free tours section. That's got to be a good thing. And it promises to take you all around the places that Dickens knew in London and the places that he wrote about. Think Lincoln's Inn, Temple, Fleet Street, Holborn, And the whole thing finishes up, where else, at the Dickens Museum. To mention just one of the many places it will take you to, somewhere called Staple Inn, described in the unfinished novel that Dickens was working on when he died, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, as follows. Behind the most ancient part of Holborn, where certain gabled houses, some centuries of age, still stand, looking on the public way, is a little nook called Staple Inn. It is one of those nooks, the turning into which, out of the clashing street, imparts to the relieved pedestrian the sensation of having put cotton in his ears and velvet soles on his boots. If you want to go on a Shakespeare walk, you can find an excellent, highly detailed, self-guided walk downloadable from www.cityoflondon.gov.uk. Look for things to do and then walks and itineraries and then finally Shakespeare's London. Here's a description from the website. You will visit the site of the original Globe Theatre, as well as the same building recreated and in London today, Shakespeare's Globe. Also on your travels, you'll see the only home he owned in London, his parish church, where he socialised, as well as places that made an impact on his life, such as St Paul's Cathedral and Leadenhall Market. His memorial is located in Southwark Cathedral. You can print the leaflet off, take it with you, and do as much or as little as you see fit. We mustn't forget Sherlock Holmes. And again, on the london-walking-tours.co.uk, you will find a Sherlock Holmes mystery trail, which will take you, and I quote, in the footsteps of Holmes and Watson. It covers both the places where Sir Arthur Conan Doyle lived and worked, and the places known to his most famous creation, Sherlock Holmes. And just by way of a little flavour, here's an extract from what it says on their website. The highways and byways of London 
are as integral a feature of Holmes and Watson's adventures as are the main characters themselves, and no story would be complete without a brisk stroll or a knuckle-clenching carriage chase through the fog-enshrouded thoroughfares of the Victorian or Edwardian metropolis. Your guide then will take you to all these places and explain them to you. And lastly, Harry Potter. Again, there are lots of different walks to choose from, but I like the look of the one on www.getyourguide.co.uk. They have a London Harry Potter walking tour, which will take you to see various film locations, give you lots of info about the books and the films, let you, quote, visit the Ministry of Magic and see the entrance to the Leaky Cauldron. I must reiterate that in all four cases, other tours are available, but I'll put the links to these four into the show notes. And so it's almost time for the sign-off. I think really for a literary episode, I would like to end with the words of one of the great men or women themselves. So I'll sign off now and just say that I hope very much you'll be joining me for the very last London episode next time. That's going to be a London bucket list. I've enlisted quite a lot of people to help me with that. So hopefully there are ideas aplenty and something to suit everybody. But for now, let's finish with two quotations by that very famous pair of Wordsworths, Dorothy and William. You probably know his poem, composed upon Westminster Bridge, because it's one of the most famous pieces of writing about London ever, ever, ever. But not everyone is familiar with the piece written by his sister Dorothy, about the same site, the view from Westminster Bridge. I do not know if they were there on the same morning. I suspect maybe they were. Anyway, I am going to read what Dorothy wrote, and then I'm going to let Dan finish the episode by reading out the poem composed upon Westminster Bridge, September the 3rd, 1802, followed by the sign-off music. So I'll say my goodbyes now. OK, so here's Dorothy's extract. Quote, It was a beautiful morning. The city, St Paul's, with the river and a multitude of little boats, made a most beautiful sight as we crossed Westminster Bridge. The houses were not overhung by their cloud of smoke, and they were spread out endlessly, yet the sun shone so brightly, with such a fierce light, that there was something like the purity of one of nature's own grand spectacles. And finally then, William Wordsworth's poem. Composed upon Westminster Bridge, September 3rd, 1802. Earth hath not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth, like a garment, wear the beauty of the morning, silent, bare. Ships, towers, domes, theatres and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully steep in his first splendour, valley, rock or hill. Ne'er saw I, never felt a calm so deep. The river glideth at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still.